Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 384 of the History of England, The Breaking Storm. Last time we heard about how the English reluctantly, but seemingly inexorably, drifted to war, despite the uncomprehending feeling on the part of most of them that surely their king and parliament could sort this out. They were so close. We heard about how most of them tried hard to avoid making any choice at all, but most were reluctantly forced to do so, because certainly the king and probably parliament were now committed to fighting, although a shot has yet to be fired. Although it's impossible to make hard and fast rules about what kind of people plumped for each side, in general, royalists fought for tradition, the preservation of the social hierarchy and for the Elizabethan Church of England, despite not really sharing Charles's view of what that actually meant in practice. Parliamentarians fought for their true religion and for liberty and the principle of consent between subject and sovereign. We then saw Charles's increasingly frustrated efforts to raise an army at York, going then through Lincolnshire to Nottinghamshire, where he finally seized the nettle and raised the standard of war to about 30 wet and wind-blown people. Well, today, gentle listeners, after all the talking, we are at last going to see some blood spilled. Now, I assume this is a good thing. I have sensed some impatience at the lack of death and indeed of destruction. And if so, well, you have finally come to the right place. 
Last time, we left the king in quite a dark place, a wet and windy day in Nottingham, normally the sort of place reserved for stag do's in what has become known as the Stag Party Centre of the UK. And he held a rather dismal ceremony declaring war on his own people. His recruiting efforts had been, so far, stunningly unsuccessful in terms of numbers, despite a very well-crafted and intelligent propaganda campaign. Meanwhile, Parliament's unity was far from unchallenged either. There was a strong peace party emerging, and royalist MPs were steadily sneaking away from the capital and making their way to the king. But Parliament had appointed a military commander in the Earl of Essex. They had all the goodies from the National Arsenal in London and the Northern Arsenal from Hull to boot now. And although the quality of England's trained bands generally could be compared unfavourably with the British Rail Sandwich from the 1970s, not a high bar, let me tell you, the best in the country nonetheless were the trained bands in London. So, the clever money was on the ball being in the back of the King's net, with him brought to heel by Christmas. Today we're going to hear how Charles capitalised then on that successful propaganda appeal that he'd made to the people, and how he would then stand that expectation on its head. His rallying cry of stability, church and social order, the deeply entrenched custom of reverence for the monarchy, proved to be a powerful rallying cry. By the time Charles set off from Nottingham after the 22nd of August to work his way through the Midlands recruiting, military confrontations had already taken place. In July, the Earl of Hertford had tried to execute the King's Commission of Array in Somerset, establishing himself and his recruiting office at Wells. And people came in streams, rivers, cascades. Reports, in fact, suggest that no fewer than 12,000 people assembled from Wiltshire, Gloucestershire and Somerset. But... When they got there, rather than signing up, they loudly insisted that the Earl of Hertford sling his hook. The Earl of Hertford so slung, and indeed slunk, back to the friendly Lord Digby's castle, there to sulk for a while. A few days before Charles left Nottingham, there had been a mass confrontation of armed retinues at Warwick, where contingents from both parties had faced each other and fired vicious salvos of rhetoric at each other and then backed away before swords were drawn or muskets raised. The Royalists returned to lay siege to Warwick Castle, actually, but then they were driven off by the arrival of contingents from Lord Brooke, which included John Hamden and his regiment of greencoats that he'd raised in Buckinghamshire back home. There were some shots fired, and a few royalists were killed. It is one of the claimants for the first bloodshed of the Civil War, but we're not really there yet. As Charles worked his way from Nottingham through the Midlands, he had only 800 men under his command. The countryside was described by one observer as a cockpit spurring against each other. He headed for Coventry and its royalist mayor and the county magazine that stood there but he was driven off by shots fired from the wall by the citizens of the city. By September, Charles was in Shrewsbury in the west, near to the Welsh borders, and things were beginning to look a bit grim. It was pointed out to him, rather nicely, that there were three parliamentary armies to his south as he had marched, and any one of them could have destroyed him at any point of his progress from Nottingham. 
that none of them did, including Essex, I should say, seemed like nothing short of a miracle. But the news wasn't really good for him. In addition to his dusty reception on the march to Shrewsbury, the Navy, which had declared for Parliament and was commanded by Warwick, was doing its level best to prevent supplies reaching Charles from Henrietta Maria's efforts abroad. Warwick had meanwhile secured the Isle of Wight, and worst of all, he'd taken control of the port at Portsmouth. Now this was important. Charles and Henrietta Maria had already identified this as the best port for supplies to reach the king from the continent, so now they would need to find another route. Charles had been shocked at the Navy's desertion of his call, and now he was feeling the impact. The moderates around Charles even persuaded him to send out feelers to parliaments for more discussions about peace, rejected, of course, as he almost certainly hoped and expected. In London, then, Essex was gathering men and militia, training and doing his best to equip them at camps, covering the artillery grounds and Tothill fields outside the city walls. He inspired confidence in our Essex. The well-being of his men was important to him. He looked after them, and they loved him for it. He was an, of an ancient, very grand house, and had a reputation for great experience from the Thirty Years' War. We have heard of Essex before, you might remember, as the man whose first wife, Frances Howard, had made him a laughingstock by getting an annulment based on sexual incompetence. His second marriage was turning out little better, with constant rumours of his wife's infidelities. This was a fact of which Essex would be regularly and unkindly reminded on royalist banners throughout the war. Cuckold we come, one of them read. Nothing like a bit of soldier bant. But in London, they didn't mind about that. Around the muster fields, his coach was often mobbed by adoring crowds. Essex would save them all. In fact, his real military experience was actually pretty limited. And to defensive operations in the Thirty Years' War at that, his experience there had taught him to be super cautious about any loss of blood. He would rather lumber his way through the coming wars, constantly slow, constantly reactive. However, on the 9th of September 1642, at last, banners flying, drums are drumming, pipers piping, presumably without the leaping lords or dancing ladies, Essex left London and started to pursue his king with orders to rescue him from his evil counsellors, poor Lamekin. He called a general muster at Northampton, realised that none of the people who came there had any idea of what to do with a pike or a musket, and so sat down there for a while to train them. Now there's a certain trope in dramas which follow the lines of Alfred and the story of the Egbert Stone. You know the one. The king, leader, warlord, or whatever. He's down and out on his or her uppers, completely out of it. Their cause is dead. Boudica is alone. Bravely, they make a last desperate call for all the people, loyal and true, to meet at a special place on a special day. For days they travel until finally they arrive at the special place the night before the special day and despair with a special despair. Their cause is lost. There is no one there. The fields and the woods lie empty. Nothing stirs but the odd bird or maybe a rabbit. But wait, what is this? There is a sound, a rustling. A few people approach. No, wait, there are more. And over the hill come more than more until thousands are waving, cheering and playing on bagpipes, probably. All of them unusually healthy. 
On they march, baddies die bad deaths, wishbone ash play, the king has come in the background, and everyone lives happily ever after. Well, I'm not saying this is exactly what happens at Shrewsbury, you understand, but it kind of does. Charles's strategies start paying off. The chaos of iconoclasm and social upheaval was putting the wind in various places it had no right to be. There were riots in Chelmsford and the Stour Valley. The local and deeply unpopular Lucas family there were forced to take refuge in the town jail. There were enclosure riots in the West and in the Fenlands. The King's appeal of order, church and tradition sounded increasingly on the money. Tactically, he now switched from trying to raise troops through the commissions of array, which were widely viewed with suspicion and accused of being illegal without Parliament, to granting commissions to individual great men to raise contingents with their own money under their own auspices. At the same time, Parliament was busy taking aim with a pistol at its foot and squeezing the trigger, issuing an ordinance that anyone fighting for the king would have their possessions seized, which encouraged a bunch of landowners to take the opposite view, rush to the king's side so that he won and would then protect their property. And so they started to come. The Earl of Derby bought three regiments afoot from Lancashire. Landowners in Wales, Cheshire and Staffordshire recruited 11 more regiments. And many Catholics responded too. I mean, it has to be said they had very little to thank the king for. For in fact, Charles had publicly declared that no papist of what degree or quality soever shall be admitted to serve in our army. But he fibbed, frankly. He'd take what he was given and it would be a public relations problem later. But in the short term, it was bacon saving. Catholics raised money for him too. In the counties around Shrewsbury, they paid over £5,000 to him as advances for recusancy fines, which feels very odd, doesn't it? Sort of, you know I'm due to persecute you next year. Could we bring that forward a bit? Anyway, he was also joined by 2,000 men under the command of one of the most famous characters of the Civil Wars. I speak, of course, of Prince Rupert of the Palatinate of the Rhine. He is a flamboyant character in the popular story of the Civil Wars. Long, flowing locks, lovely doggy at his side a big poodle-type thing called Boy, and who can resist a young, good-looking, rich boy with floppy haircut, a doggy, and a drop-top? Well, you can expect me to do some debunking of this story. He didn't have a drop-top, I have to point out, or even a top-knot, but some of it is true. Grant me the indulgence now of giving the young 22-year-old a bit of backstory. Rupert was a younger son of Frederick and Elizabeth of the Palatinate, of course, Winter King, Winter Queen. He had 13 siblings, would you believe, two of whom, his elder Charles Louis and the heir, and his younger bro Morris, were also with him in England. Charles Louis would soon leave and not be a King Charles fan, it has to be said. They'd all had a toughish childhood, on the run and poorer they'd like, obviously, all things being relative. Rupert's dad was a rather morose sort of bloke, but Rupert took after his mother, Elizabeth. Now, she was energetic and lively, assertive, a mad, keen hunter, wild spender of money. Her children adored her. Rupert was all sorts. Tall for his age at six foot, athletic, strong, great dancer, cutting the very best of shapes, a tremendous tennis player of which his elder brother, Charles Louis, 
deeply disapproved because he played it so hard he actually sweated, which is so vulgar. There's a lovely line from his biographer that even his mother remarked on Rupert's angelic appearance. Even? Even? Isn't that exactly what mothers do? Isn't there something about rose-tinted spectacles? Anyway, nor was Rupert's head just a hat rack. He was an accomplished mathematician. He knew his history, his art. He spoke several languages. That all sounds great. No wonder he's a hero. Equally, he was badly behaved, headstrong, impetuous, and had a bad temper bigger than Cromwell's wart, so much so he acquired the family nickname of Le Diable, the Devil. He had fought in the Thirty Years' War from the age of 16 and kind of proved his talent as a brave cavalry commander, but it has to be said he'd spent most of his time, three years of it, banged up. But while he sat in prison, he studied artillery and matters military from books, for which he had a passion, and he gained great knowledge. He visited England in the 1630s and was dedicated to his uncle Charles and to his cause he would be fiercely loyal and dedicated. Charles played close attention to Rupert for much of the time, and he was a constant advisor for a bold and aggressive strategy in line with the urgings of others like Henrietta Maria and George Digby, against the moderation of Hyde and his party of civilian advisers. It is not surprising that Rupert gets a good press. He is, in a word, dashing. But there's a dark side to Rupert. Although much of his military knowledge came from books, he brought with him the habit of the Thirty Years' War of armies living off the land and would prove on multiple occasions to be unusually violent and responsible for the sacking of a number of towns and cities. Worst of all, Birmingham and Leicester. He was entitled, violent, petulant. Henrietta Maria knew what he was like. She warned Charles against a young man that she would spar with over the years. He was... Capable of doing anything, she warned, and advised, he should have someone to advise him, for believe me, he is yet very young and self-willed. I have experience of him. Jonathan Healy, the historian, rather memorably summarised him as a thuggish toff, which sounds a tad anachronistic, but not unfair. It was Rupert, though, who brought the first scent of royalist victory at Powick Bridge on the 23rd of September, Essex was on the march at last, advancing west through Worcester, where a parliamentary detachment caught a royalist one retreating from Oxford to join the king at Shrewsbury. In a sharp engagement, Rupert's cavalry charge put the parliamentarian cavalry to flight. Although it was a small engagement, maybe only 50 men killed on either side, the parliamentary commander Sands was killed and it was a tremendous boost for royalist morale. And when Essex's main army entered Worcester a few days later, they disgraced themselves, vandalising the cathedral, smashing images and statues, and weighing in the font in the name of the rejection of superstition. Charles was delighted. It was a better recruiter than any poster. By the end of September 1642, Charles's situation and mood had been through the ringer. During his nadir, at the end of August, he had been reported to be in agony at the thought of needing to negotiate with Parliament. In so great an agony, he had not slept two hours the whole night. His despair was probably not helped by the stream of letters from his wife, 
urging him to do better. I should never have quitted England because you will have rendered my journey ridiculous, having broken all the resolutions you and I have taken, save going to York and there doing nothing. Ouch! Thank you, darling. But Henrietta Maria had now delivered better than sharp words. Her first shipment of arms and munitions, bought by pawning her jewels, had evaded Warwick's naval blockade and had now reached Charles at Shrewsbury. His army had swollen and swollen, and was now at least the equal of the parliamentary army under Essex, maybe 14,000 strong. He was back in business, the greatest comeback since Lazarus. By the start of October, it was now reported by one, I never saw the king better. In council, there was a feeling of bullishness. This was going their way. A correspondent wrote in code, The king is of late very much averse to peace by the persuasions of 102 and 111. 102 and 111 were probably Digby and Prince Rupert. It might be worth recording the discussion Charles would have in a few months with his mate Hamilton, which showed that the memory of Strafford was still raw and red in his mind, stealing his determination to fight, because only war would show if God had forgiven him for having broken his word to Strafford. For I will either be a glorious king or a patient martyr. Meanwhile, Henrietta Maria was also writing, urging Charles on to secure the glory you may have and pouring scorn on the counsels of the unambitious and lily-livered moderates like Hyde. As for believing they would wish to see you absolute, their counsels visibly show the contrary. Henrietta Maria was absolutely right. Edward Hyde, remember, had started this business supporting the Junto's mission to rebalance the powers of Crown and Commons. The moderates on the King's Council were very much opposed to the idea of the King being absolute and urged Charles to continue the strategy he'd followed so well, of moderation, of emphasising tradition and a return to normality. So although Charles now ordered his army to move towards London, he listened to the voices of moderation. He made a public proclamation to his army that was immediately published and widely distributed. It was another manifesto, effectively, probably written again by Hyde. He shall meet no enemies but traitors, most of them Brownists, Anabaptists and Atheists, such as desire to destroy both church and state. And then he followed it with a royal oath to defend the Church of England, governed by the known laws of the land, and protect the just privileges and freedoms of Parliament. You could almost hear the eye rolling from across the channel. Henrietta was furious at this public moderation. Now was the time for Charles to become the monarch he had always known he should have been. Had I been with you, I would not have suffered it. I beg you be a little more careful in the oaths you take. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the 12th of October, after consulting his council of war, Charles's main army began leaving Shrewsbury on the first and hopefully last campaign to crush the viper's head of rebellion and regain the London that he had left. They knew Essex and his 14,000 men were somewhere around. But they did not want to get bogged down, so they tried to give him a wide berth. Slightly tricky, because neither army had yet to develop the talents and habits of experienced military commanders, and so had little scouting organisation. Basically, each of the commanders had only a very vague idea of where each other were, with their 14,000 men, artillery and a cloud of camp followers. A note on this. As previously emphasised, England was generally very demilitarised. It was a country with largely only out-of-date and decaying fortifications, no standing army. Charles himself had absolutely zip experience of commanding anything more than his own toilet facilities. But that's not to say there was no experience at all. Tens of thousands of English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish young men had gone to fight in the wars on the continent. There were many who had come back, with command experience, and the English, including Charles, were not silly enough to ignore them. So many commanders had experienced military men at their side to help. Charles would leave all the military dispositions in the forthcoming battle to an experienced Scottish commander, Lord Riven. The Duke of Newcastle, Charles's general in the north, had another experienced Scottish adviser. John Hampton's foot regiment was commanded by a man with experience of fighting for the French. Both sides were aware of the main strategies of army displacements, particularly the Swedish or the Dutch models. So, inexperienced, true. Unsophisticated, yes. Behind the times, certainly. But clueless, no. Essex lumbered out of Worcester on the 19th of October, broadly aware that the king was on the move and had passed through Birmingham, where the locals had yelled abuse at him, and was on his way towards London, probably heading first for Banbury and its county arsenal. So Essex headed east to try and cut the king off from London and also relieve Banbury. On the night of the 22nd of October, he reached the market town of Kinton and settled down for the night for a bit of kip. Unbeknownst to him, near a ridge called Edge Hill was the Royalist Army. Charles knew Essex was at Kinton because Rupert's men had come across some very strange-looking soldiers looking for lodgings. Turned out they were rebels, so they nabbed them. Now, Rupert wanted a midnight attack. The rebels were clueless, scattered. Let's attack now and have them. Charles was too cautious for such a wild thing, but instead gave orders for his forces to concentrate on the 300-foot slope of Edge Hill, looking down on Kinton below. Meanwhile, Essex was blissfully unaware and was just off to church at 8am the following morning, 23rd of October, when someone noticed, hey, there's a bunch of soldiers gathering on that hill over there. The cat was released among the pigeons. There were feathers everywhere. Orders were issued from said cloud of feathers. 
Essex didn't feel confident enough to attack, so he drew up his men in the valley below the hill as the royalist commanders watched and debated what to do. It took him some hours to achieve his formation. By and large, I am at this point going to avoid giving too much detailed stuff on military formations on the slightly cowardly grounds I'll probably get it wrong. But I can I just say that Essex favoured a Dutch formation, which was considered simpler. As a general scheme, the infantry, pike and musket were in the centre, with cavalry on the wings, plus a small reserve at the back. Dragoons right out on the wings causing trouble and slowing the enemy down. Field artillery tended to be in pairs at the front at the beginning of the war. Generally, they won't be very effective. Now, there was something of a full and frank exchange of views going on in Charles's Council of War, as you'd expect, I guess. Charles was something of a believer in rank. As a king, I suspect, it rather goes with the territory. It meant that he had given Prince Rupert a roving brief, subject to nobody's orders but only his, Charles's. This thing about precedence and rank would be a feature of the royal military cause throughout the wars, and it's worth noting the practice of commissioning individuals to raise contingents generally also meant that the army had too many chefs and insufficient sous-chefs. Rupert, in addition, was not shy of offering the benefit of his opinion, and it led to those full and frank exchange of views I was talking about with the supposed supreme commander of the Royalist Army, the Earl of Lindsay. Lindsay favoured a Dutch formation too that he'd learned in the Thirty Years' War. Rupert said, Pooh, Swedish it must be. The Swedish formation, it is said, gave greater firepower but was more complex and required better training and drilling, which of course these green troops did not have. However, Charles ruled in his nephew's favour over the army commander. Lindsay didn't take it well, it has to be said. Since his majesty thought him not fit to perform the office of commander-in-chief, he would serve him as colonel. He said this distinctly sniffily, I think it's fair to say. He stalked after his regiment of foot. Stalked, I tell you. He insisted his regiment be placed opposite Essex in what could expect to be the hottest part of the coming fight. Charles perceived that Essex had no intention of attacking, especially not up that 300-foot hill, and so over the next couple of hours the Royalist army helpfully moved down to face their enemies on the valley. Charles started a pretty speech. Your king brings you be courageous, and heaven make you victorious. The sound of hussars echoed across the valley, so Essex ordered his artillery to fire at them, and Charles stopped. Now look, I think there are often too many names, or some of you have told me that, so sorry for what follows. But it seems to me that one of those aspects of the civil wars, especially at the start, is that so many of those folks we've heard about now pick up arms in defence of their words. John Lilburn, the radical and future leveller whose conviction and punishment at the hands of Star Chamber had been such a cause celeb, he was there in Essex's army, he would fight bravely and become a colonel of cavalry. His brother, Henry Lilburn, was facing him on the other side from the royalist ranks. There were many divided families here. A young man called Basil Fielding faced his father, William Fielding. Basil's mother, Susan, had pleaded with him continually not to side with Parliament. Let me entreat you to look back upon me and upon yourself 
whose ruin I see clearly before my eyes. Young Basil, though, had stuck to his guns. Denzel Hollis, the MP who'd held the Speaker in his chair in 1629, he was there fighting bravely in the infantry. Hampton and Cromwell, they were on the way, although Cromwell only got to fight at the very end. Edmund Verney, meanwhile, the reluctant but loyal commander whose son's dedication to the parliamentary cause had broken his heart, was by the king, performing the knight's martial role of standard-bearer. He had sworn that no one would take it from his hands while he lived. Meanwhile, William Harvey, that guy who codified the circulation of the blood in the 1620s, which I rather missed back then, by the way, he was at the battle too as the king's physician. He wasn't fighting, though. Instead, he'd brought a good book with him, as you do, and sat under a hedge until a bullet came uncomfortably close and he was forced to turn a page corner over to mark his spot, which I know will make some people angrier than all the civil wars combined, and move away. I mean, there's more, but that's enough. So, after a rather unimpressive exchange of artillery and a bit of skirmishing, Rupert decided this has gone on quite long enough, let's get on with it. But he knew his business did our rupee, and so his dragoons were sent out to clear the opposing parliamentary dragoons on the flanks, put there to pepper any advancing cavalry with a bit of musket fire, to aim at the horses, of course, which were particularly vulnerable. Dragoons, then, are mounted infantry, lightly armed and armoured, sent nipping around the place to cause trouble in inconvenient places, dogs' bodies of all trades, by and large. Once done... Rupert's cavalry on the right wing began to advance, and we are off. Now, the way this worked traditionally was that you attacked in a wedge or diamond-shaped formation, knee to knee with your fellow riders if you could, though that would be difficult to maintain later. You had a pistol or carbine in your hand, the other hand holding the reins under the pommel of the saddle. Gently, you'd go forward at a walk to keep formation until... A hundred yards away from the people you hoped shortly to call loser, you get as fast as you can, probably no more than a hurried trot or canter, to be honest. When you reach there, you'd fire your pistol at your man and then maybe throw the thing at his head if you missed, reach for another pistol if you had time, or if not, go straight for the sword and start hacking. The horsemen facing them would have stood in close formation, stationary, knees locked, waiting to fire until the very last moment to break the weight of your charge. And if they held formation, they would win. If their formation was broken, they would toast and would turn and flee. And that is what happened here. The parliamentary horse fired their carbines too early, they panicked, Rupert's men were among them, and they fled for their lives. Later that night, after all was done, Cromwell would discuss with this with his mate John Hamden over a fire somewhere, and with the view that the parliamentary horsemen were, most of them, decayed old serving men and tapsters and such kind of fellows, while the royalists were gentlemen's sons, younger sons and person of quality. Famously, of course, Cromwell's solution was not to recruit men of similar social class, but instead recruit men of spirit and commitment to the cause for which they fought. Men of a spirit that is likely to go on as far as gentlemen will go, or else I am sure you will be beaten still. Even more famously, Cromwell will recruit his own Ironsides on the principle, 
I'd rather have a plain russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. Anyway, back to Edge Hill, where the parliamentary left were blown away. On the other side of the field, exactly the same thing happened. The pursuit went on until Rupi and his men came to the parliamentary camp at Kinton and got stuck into some good, solid pillaging and looting. I mean, silly not to. I always imagined bedclothes being pillaged for some reason. Always have, since I was a kiddie, an image I just can't shift. Now, this is a good central part of the story of Edge Hill and indeed the civil wars, as I was taught with my mother's milk. This was that this was just typical bloody Rupert, wild, uncontrolled flybernite with his floppy hair and his unbridled passion. Why didn't he go back to the battle? Well, the truth, as I now have been told, is that cavalry returning to the battle was vanishingly rare. Everyone was way too scattered about to manage that. The horses would be knackered anyway, so you might as well get on with pillaging and see if you could pick yourself out a nice pair of silk pants. So... They kept on pillaging until John Hamden's foot regiment arrived and drove them off like driving crows from the crop. No, the role of cavalry for the rest of the battle was to be played by the cavalry held in reserve. That was the plan. That's what they were there for. So the real crime of unbridled passion was not Rupert's. It was Lord Byron's, whose reserve cavalry, the lifeguard, seeing all the fun and laughter, joined in and charged after Rupert's men. Also, someone had mocked the lifeguards for standing there at the back and called them a troop of show. So Honour demanded that the lifeguards get involved and become a troop of showing just how manly they really were. They'd fully expected the parliamentary oiks to run like the peasants they were. Anyway, this just confirmed it. Better not miss out. So there was only a tiny contingent of royalist cavalry left on the field while Parliament's reserve cavalry stayed exactly where it was. So you see, you can't always trust your mother's milk. Incidentally, Byron's cavalry escapade left Edmund Verney unprotected there at the back with his standard note bene. Well, sensing blood and victory, Sir Jacob Astley, the commander of the Royalist infantry in the centre, drew a deep breath, bowed his head and said... O Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget you, do not thou forget me. And so another famous quote of the Civil Wars was born. March on, boys, he then yelled, and so they advanced 10,000 against 6,000 parliamentary foot. It was push of pike and a continual raking musket fire. Blood, mud, screams, howls. Neither side gave an inch. And this was where Lindsay fought. And this was where Lindsay was hit in the leg by a musket bullet, a wound that would kill him. Now, Essex had played it by the book. He was a play-it-by-the-book kind of guy, to be fair. His reserve cavalry was still there in place, and so he used them now, and he used them wisely. Into the infantry they charged, an infantry not prepared for cavalry and with none of their own cavalry left to defend them, and therefore finding it difficult to adjust. The intervention saved the battle for Parliament. Both sides were now exhausted and started to withdraw. 
It was too late for Edmund Fernie, though. He had been caught in a vicious hand-to-hand fighting in the chaos caused by the cavalry charges and wielded the standard as a pike. His manservant was killed beside him, but he cut his killer down and then embedded the standard in the guts of another soldier, but then went down and the royal standard fell with him. This was a coup. A parliamentary ensign, Arthur Young, seeing the royal standard fall, overjoyed at this stroke of luck, leapt forward to take the standard back as a trophy to Essex. But try as he might, he could not tear it from the cold, dead, relentlessly loyal grip of the dead Verney. So he hacked off the hand and took it in triumph and presented the standard to Essex. And so Edmund Verney's vow was fulfilled. Not that Arthur had it for long, though. John Smith ripped off his royalist colours, put on an orange parliamentary sash, found the standard, half-inched it right back, returned to his lines and presented it to his king. Charles, delighted to have something to celebrate, turned him from John Smith into Sir John Smith. Such are the tales of honour, glory and daring do with which I filled my youth. Well, there it is. First major engagement of the English Revolution. By golly, by gun, how was it for you? I must at some point do a military episode so I can explain military formations, artillery, siege warfare and all the rest as background for the next few years. Something to look forward to, you lucky, lucky things, you. Next morning, then, neither side felt strong enough to continue the fight. Both had lost about 1,500 men in the fight, and both declared they'd won an absolutely stonking victory. Well done, me. But although it's accounted a draw, Edgehill, in one key aspect, was a royal victory, because Charles held the battlefield. I mean, you might sneer that this is just a slab of rather churned-up turf in Warwickshire, a county not short of churned-up turf. But since Essex had retreated, and he had retreated northward to Warwick, It left the road to London empty and unguarded. Nothing stood now between Charles and the capital. With Essex behind him, now Charles had the chance to march on London, finish the job, wreak vengeance on the rebels that had defied his royal authority. For the Vernis, however, the battle was never over. Despite searching, his grieving and slightly guilty-feeling son, Ralph, was never able to find his father's body. It had been buried in a mass grave. And before long, over the battlefield and in the woods at his house at Claydon, was seen the ghostly figure of Edmund Verney searching for his lost hand. Always good, as I'm sure you'll agree, to end on a good old ghost story. Join me again next time for the story of Charles's big chance to bring his enemies to heel at London. Until that time, thank you very, very much, everyone, for listening and for making comments and being on Facebook and all that sort of thing. It's really good. Uh, Good luck and have a great week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.